0: The sermon text for this evening's message comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. Again, the passage is John 1, 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known.
1: Nothing in the universe is more powerful than your word. By your word, you brought galaxies into being. By your word, you uphold the universe. By your word, you raise the dead. And I pray now that you would speak your word through me. Holy Spirit, for the glory of the Son, we invite you and plead with you to come. There are people in this room who don't see you savingly. They see you from outside and I pray that you would cause the eyes of their hearts to be opened, that they might see your glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and by seeing would be saved. I pray for Christians who've had dim eyes for a long time and their hearts have languished. Please come. Come at the South Campus. Come downtown. Come at the North Campus. Oh, come and speak savingly Your Word. Through Christ I pray. Amen. And the Word became flesh. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word that became flesh is the word of verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So we are told that for 33 years, roughly, God Was among us as the God-man. God dwelt among us. And John focuses here in verses 14 to 18 on two things. He focuses on the glory of Christ and he focuses on the grace overflowing from that glory. You see that at the end of verse 14? This glory is full of grace and truth. And even though truth is mentioned, grace gets the accent, as you can see in verse 16. From this fullness, we have received grace upon grace. He could have said, we have received truth upon truth. And he didn't. This grace is overflowing. This glory is overflowing with grace and truth. And from this fullness, we have received grace upon grace. So the accent in the paragraph is falling on grace. In fact, strangely... After this verse, 16, the word grace never occurs again in this gospel, nor in first John. And the word truth and true and truly occurs in this gospel 55 times. Clearly truth does not get minimized in this gospel. But here, it's grace that's being sounded as the central dominant note. The glory is overflowing in its fullness with grace and truth, and from it we have received not grace and truth, but grace upon grace. That's where the accent is falling Here in this paragraph. Now this is hugely important for you to see and for everybody you know and care about to see. What John is saying in this 14 to 18, really in the whole book, what John is saying is that if anybody wants to know God today, if anybody wants to see God today, If anybody wants to have any fellowship with God today, what they should do is look at Jesus Christ and His glory with a very special attention to the fullness of that glory, namely grace overflowing for sinners. If you want to see God, if you want to know God, zero in. On Jesus, and zero in specifically on His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, and even more specifically, zero in and get your mind and heart tuned to see grace in that glory in that Son who is God. And if if you do that, perhaps God, in His great mercy, would grant you to see. we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the great issue of all humankind. Do people see this? To see it is to be saved. To see it is to have eternal life. To see it is to have been born again. This is the great issue on this planet. He lived 33 years, God did, on this planet. Everything orients on that. Everything before it was looking to it. Everything after it keys off of it. This is astonishing. Everybody who's going to be saved has to see this. The gospel needs to be told. This little, this little book here, something like this, needs to be read or studied. And, and out of these pages, we see a man. A God-man and by grace glory may shine and through that glory the fullness of overflowing grace may abound and our hearts may be quickened and we would see it as compellingly true and beautiful and be saved. It's hard to exaggerate the importance of this book. Stupendous things are in this little Gospel of John. Herman Ritterboss was, uh, in the previous generation, a New Testament Dutch scholar who has written some very big books, a very big commentary on the Gospel of John, and a very good one, as I am finding. He said this. By means of incarnation, the word became flesh. By means of incarnation, God has visibly appeared among humankind. We may immediately add the entire gospel of John is proof of it proof of that abundant glory, a glory manifested before the eyes of all. End quote. That's amazing. The entire gospel of John is proof of it. Really. That means that when you have eyes to see, If you follow the story of Jesus in the Gospel of John, your eyes, the eyes of your heart, your spiritual eyes, may be enabled to see the glory of God in the face of Christ and seeing, be born again, and believe, and receive, and be saved. So we got 10,000 of these. And we would like for this sermon series these connections and your web of relationships with probably twenty or thirty thousand people in I mean that's way small. There are five thousand folks who show up for, to worship here on the weekend, so each of them knows ten or twenty people. That's a lot of people. that's a hundred thousand people, probably that are more or less connected with this church through your lives. What might in the next six or eight weeks God be pleased to do if not only we, but lots of churches go hard after those we love who are not yet seeing and put the means of seeing in their hand, pray down the Holy Spirit, invite them perhaps to come to a service and hear the story of the gospel of John. Now, here's a question you need to ask about them. Why do they need Grace. Grace. Why did you need grace? The answer to that question in this context may surprise you. If you're just a kind of culture-absorbing American, the reason everybody needs grace according to this context is if the grace that comes in Jesus Christ doesn't land in power on them, they are not the children of God. Let's read verses 12 and 13 again. But to all who did receive him, Christ, the Word, the Son of God, glorious, full of grace, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, His name standing for all this reality about Him, that He's God, that He's glorious, that He's gracious. He gave them the right to become children of God. He gave them the right to become children of God who were born. This is how they received. This is how they believed. This is how they saw. They were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. They were born of God. When you're born of God the second time, not the first time born of mother and father, born of God, that's a work of free grace. A baby doesn't get himself born. Grace gets us born. That's a work of, of grace. It happens consciously through our faith. We experience that as faith. Just think how stupendous this is. If you listen to television or just kind of pop culture, you'll hear things like, We're all God's children. All God's children. That's not what Jesus taught. That's not what he taught. Let me read you a devastating word from Jesus. For the most religious people of his day. This is John chapter 8, verses 41 47. These Jewish leaders say indignantly to Jesus, we have one father, even God. So there they're claiming it. We're children of God. We have one father, even God. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Verse 47. Whoever is of God, that's a reference to being born of God back in verse 13. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. That's how we hear them. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So this is clear. Everybody is not a child of God. And there is only one way to become a child of God. And that's verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1. The most religious people of Jesus' day were not children of God. And that's the condition we were all in. And maybe some of you at this moment are. Are in. Not a child of God. You need to hear about Jesus. Experience the new birth. See the glory of Jesus. Believe. And thus have the authority to be the children of God. It happens by new birth. When the new birth happens to you, you see. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace overflowing for us, and truth. And when you see that, you are immediately, irresistibly drawn to embrace it. If you're not embracing it, you're not seeing it. Listen to this. John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus to Nicodemus, truly Truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The glory of Christ, the king in the kingdom, will be seen when God opens our eyes. Christianity is a supernatural religion. It is not a decisionistic willpower religion. We don't make converts. God makes converts. We preach and pray and labor and long and give out gospels and bring people to church and agonize over them with every manner of good work to display the nature of Jesus. And in the end, we say, oh God, oh God, open their eyes so that they will see. It would not be an overstatement to say that the ultimate goal of the Gospel of John is that people see and enjoy the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, I know in chapter 20, verse 31 says, These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life. Eternal life in His name. I know that. That's true. That's the goal of the Gospel. But just think about that for a minute. Who cares about living forever? If you're bored, let's get it over with. So, eternal life must mean something good. What? Well, I I can point you to exactly what it is, because Jesus prayed that it would happen. So I'll read it to you. This is the climax of what he was asking to happen in the lives of God's children. It's chapter 17, verse 24. Father, I desire... This is Jesus, the Son of God, praying to his Father. I desire... 1724. I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you gave me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, do you see what that means? Chapter 1, verse 14, John says, We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus says, oh God, I pray now that they would be with me where I am after my resurrection in heaven and on the new earth someday, that they would be with me. Why do I want them with me? So that they might be able to see the glory that you gave me before the foundation of the world because they haven't seen anything yet. What we see in Jesus now is glorious and self-authenticating, and we wouldn't trade it for all the money in Fort Knox. But it's only a shadow. We see in a mirror dimly, and the day is coming, and Jesus is praying for it. Oh, Father, bring them on home. In other words, the goal of eternal life is to see Jesus. Behold what manner of love the Father has shown to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when we see Him, we will be like Him. We're going to see Him, and that seeing will be so powerful, we will be revolutionized in the twinkling of an eye and all the glory that he had from the foundation of the world, we won't just see, we will, in some ineffable manner, be. We will reflect it. We will be glorified. That is, we will be given the capacities to enjoy it to the full and reflect it as much as a created being can reflect it without becoming himself God Almighty. There are two obstacles to be overcome in this text. Two obstacles to be overcome for this to happen for you, if it hasn't happened yet, and for those you care about this holiday season. This seeing now by the new birth. One obstacle is my blindness apart from grace. I can't see because I'm blind. And the other obstacle is that the world is filled with darkness and there was no compelling light in it. Now, those are two things. In order to see, you you have to have eyes that are workable and you have to have something to see. So there are two kinds of darkness. The darkness that fills the world and the darkness that fills my mind. I'm blind and this world is under the darkening influence of the devil, those two obstacles have to change. That's got to change. And this text is about, and this gospel is about how God is changing them. Darkness in our souls is overcome by regeneration or new birth. Darkness in the world is overcome by incarnation. The word became flesh. There's my summary statement. Darkness in here, my blindness, my deadness, my darkness is overcome by being born again. Regeneration. Darkness out there is overcome by light has come into the world. The Word was made flesh. I am the light of the world, Jesus said. And that's incarnation. So regeneration and incarnation are the answers to these two problems. My blindness and the world's darkness. The key to both is the glory of God in Christ overflowing with grace. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full and spilling over with grace and truth. So the glory that comes into the world in Christ starts banishing the light, I mean the darkness, starts banishing the darkness. And out of that glory comes grace. And grace moves into me and causes me to be born again so that my eyes can see the glory out there. So that grace is the goal and the means of the new birth. Did you hear that? It's the goal because it's the radiance and the fullness and the beauty which is the glory. And to be born again is to see it, love it, be satisfied by it, and someday have it fully. That's the goal of the new birth, is to see the glory. But what's coming out of the glory? Grace is coming out of the glory. And what does grace do? It causes me to be born again. And what does that do? It opens my eyes to see it. Everything's coming from Jesus. Everything's going to Jesus. The glory is the source of my life. The glory is the goal of my life. The glory of Jesus is the source of my seeing, and the glory of Jesus is the object of my seeing. He's everything. Now, how does John, in verses 15 to 18, develop? This. The first thing he does before he supports verse 14 with verse 16, the first thing he does is let John the witness, John the Baptist, have a word. It's like a little parenthesis here. John's the witness. He wants to let him say something in this regard. And so here's what he says verse 15. John bore witness about him. And he cried out, This was he of whom I said, He comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. Now, the, the point of that verse is the ranking of Jesus. The firstness of Jesus in the sense of not just time, but rank, dignity, greatness. Temporally, John came first in ministry. Then Jesus showed up and John pointed to him and John decreased and Jesus increased. But John said, that's really not the way it is. I'm pointing to him and I'm saying, go to him, make much of him. He's the great, he's the first because he really was before me. And I think the author here wants us to hear verse 1 in that. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. I I think when he writes verse 15 and lets John say the reason he ranks so high and I'm going down and he's going up is because he didn't just come along after me. And I say, Okay, there's there's a man you can follow. No, 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 no. Before Abraham was, I am. And John is saying his origins are from ancient days. He knows his Old Testament. He knows his Micah. Now verse 16. Begins with the word because, believe it or not. Shame on the ESV for translating it and. Should be because or for, because it's exactly the same word that starts verse 17, which starts for. And so to reflect seriously on this, you say, how does verse 16 support or argue for verse 14? I'm treating verse 15 as a parenthesis. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. I'm reading verse 14. Full of grace and truth because, I'm down at verse 16 now, because from his fullness we all received grace upon grace. Now, if you follow the logic of that, you understood the first 15 minutes of this message. Because it's built on that. Why could we see His glory? Because we received grace upon grace. Grace enables you to see. That's the argument. So John is saying, receiving grace is the reason we could see glory. This is explicit. I'm not making this up. We have seen his glory because we have all received grace. So the we and the we seeing and receiving grace. This is a supernatural work. Seeing the glory of Christ is a supernatural event. You know it is because there are millions of people who read this and they don't see any glory at all. Right? They read this, they... Yawn and turn the television back on. There is no glory to be seen in it as far as most people are concerned because they have not been born again by that grace. This is a supernatural thing, this Christianity. It's a weighty, weighty thing. You hear the story. That's what evangelism is. God the Holy Spirit, the grace moving, quickens and opens a spiritual deadness. A light ray of truth and glory and beauty shine in where it had never gone before. It touches a deep part of you that you have never had awakened in your life. You experience something you've never known, namely spiritual perception of divine glory. And you know this is real. And nobody will ever take it from you again. You become not just an advocate for a system, but a witness to a reality. Kind of scary, isn't it? Because we're just playing games if it's not happening. We're just playing games. Trying to turn it into some kind of intellectual system. can learn in Sunday school and then spout out with our mouths and do some religious exercises before you're done you'll, you'll get tired of that it's either real God is real, the Holy Spirit is real, you've experienced a conversion and you've seen glory by virtue of God's work in your life And that glory has taken captive of you because Jesus is the most beautiful person you've ever known and you could never walk away from Him because He's totally compelling to your heart or you're not saved. That's the way you get saved. Verse 17 begins with for or because, same word, that begins verse 16. Because... Let's read 16 and 17 together so you can hear it. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Huh. Where's he going? Why does he bring Moses up? Why does he bring the law up? What in the world? This is hard for me. I had to think for hours about this. Read, think, doodle, draw, think again. What is why is Moses brought up here? Why is the law brought up here? What's What's the point of Moses? Now, here's the danger. We know our Paul pretty well here, right? We know our Romans and our Galatians. We love the doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law. And we sense the antithesis between the law and grace. And we can quote verses. i got a list of them here in my notes that make grace and law feel like, mmm like that. And So if you bring all that to this, you're probably going to miss the point. Be careful. Let the context work this for you. Why is Moses brought up here? I'm going to tell you why I think he's brought up. What's going on in this text? Well, what's going on in this text is seeing glory. It's just totally dominant. We beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That kind of language is just, Really Old Testament. And it's really Old Testament in particular places and with regard to particular persons like Moses. If you were to ask any schooled Jewish person in that century, who's the biggest hero that wrestled his way through to seeing the glory of God? Everybody would say Moses. In spite of Isaiah 6... Everybody would say Moses. And I'll read you why they would say that. The first giving of the law, Moses shattered the Ten Commandments because of the golden calf. And after that event and the punishment, God is pulling back. And Moses is desperate for God. Chapter 33 of Exodus. I'll just read them to you. Don't, you don't need to try to go there. First, the general statement. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. Whoa. That's intimate. He speaks to him in the tent of meeting out there, comes out, goes back, Joshua stays, loves the fellowship, had a different spirit than all those other ragtag ten spies who later wouldn't go in 40 years later. Now, he says to God in verse 13, Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, Please, show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. So he's pleading, show me your ways. We can't go anywhere. We can't go up. We can't move. If you don't show me your ways and I can see you active and personal in my life, I'm not going anywhere. I can't lead this people. He's wrestling with a sight of God's ways. Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you, for you have found favor in my sight. I know you by name. And then Moses, since he's on a roll here, pushes it to the limit and says, Moses said, please show me your glory. And God responded with grace. This glory that he's about to show is full of grace. Listen, this is verses 19 following. God said, I will make my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious then I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy, but he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory, my glory passes by, I will put You in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face you will not see. End of chapter 33, and the next thing that happens is the second giving of the Ten Commandments, and it goes like this. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the first, the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Okay, that is why I think John brought up Moses. Moses represents in the Old Testament, among all the heroes who had intimate relations with God, the one who most explicitly battled his way through. I want to see your glory. And God answers, you can see the back of my glory. And then when I describe my glory to you, I'm going to describe it to you in terms of grace. And when John reads that, he says, "Okay, I I need to say something about that. That's what's going on in verse 17. I need to relate that to the the glory that shows up in Jesus. Okay. Verse 16 refers to receiving grace upon grace. That's then grounded in the fact that in verse 17, through Moses was given law. And through Christ happened, arrived, grace and truth. And I think grace upon grace then probably means we've got the grace of Exodus 33. We've got the grace of Jesus and grace is just pouring wave upon wave now from Moses through Jesus into the world. And we should be very thankful. I think it's a contrast between Jesus and Moses. Verse 18 confirms me in that, that Jesus is so much greater than Moses. He's qualitatively different than Moses. Moses was giving the law. Then another grace comes through Jesus. And the contrast is Moses points to grace, points to grace. Jesus performs grace. There's a huge difference there, isn't there? Pointing to grace and performing grace. Moses reports the words of God. Jesus is the word of God. The law mirrors the light of God. Jesus is the light of God. This is a contrast and a great infinite increase in greatness and rank. Now verse 18. No one has ever seen God. the only God who is at the Father's side, he made him known. That's John's way of saying even Moses was not allowed to see him front to front. Put your hand over the wall, let go by, you see my back. And now, Jesus comes And he's not at God's back. He's in God's lap. Right? is that what it says? The old King James, in the bosom of the Father, literally in the chest of the Father, like he's being hugged all the time, or like he's sitting on his knee. Not a very good image for the majesty of the word, but you get the idea. Moses could could catch the backside of the glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God because he's coming straight from a face-to-face unity with the Father. This is the very glory of God. He and the Father are one. So Moses may have given his best gift that he could give, namely The law, but 118 says that there's something vastly superior, namely the very presence of God among us. He is making Him known. He is narrating Him, be a literal translation. Jesus is narrating God. Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness. Jesus is lifted up on the cross. Moses said, manna will come down. Jesus is the manna that comes down. Moses, John 5.45, wrote about the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. The law of Moses was the word of God. Christ was God the word. So this is what John is trying to do for us. He's taking all the admiration of Moses, all the admiration of the law, all the admiration of that, that divine encounter in Exodus 33 and says, basically, this grace, this arrival, this light, this glory, this narration of God is infinitely more significant than that one. No one has ever seen God fully. Not even Moses. But now, the one who is at the Father's side, front, chest, he is making him known. The simplest believer in the world, and this can happen to a child. They won't be able to describe it very well, but it can happen to a child. The simplest believer in the world who sees Jesus Christ, for who he is, sees the glory of God full of grace and truth, and are drawn to him forever. Jesus said, John fourteen nine, Whoever has seen me has seen what? The Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Let me end with one other verse where he says that. This is John twelve forty four. Jesus cried and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. So for the next eight weeks plus, through this holiday season, my prayer, I hope your prayer is that that would happen for hundreds of people. He who believes in me doesn't believe in me. He believes in my Father. And who sees me doesn't just see me. He sees my Father. To see Jesus is to see him as the only Son of the Father, full of divine glory, overflowing with grace, and be drawn to him and become a child of God. Don't you want that for your children and your father and your mother and your brother and your neighbor? You do. So we got 10,000 of these. And this is powerful. And we have prayer. And we have mouths. And we have arms. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to magnify your Son according to your word. Help us. If there's any in these rooms, oh God, anyone at the South Campus, anyone at the North Campus, anyone downtown who doesn't see, doesn't feel the compelling, self-authenticating brightness and beauty of the truth and realness of Jesus, would you open their eyes and make yourself compelling in their hearts so that they cannot run from you anymore? We plead with you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.